Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. I'm Joel. I'm Kim. And today on Top 8, we're counting down the most dramatic moments from the last decade at Wimbledon. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. everybody welcome back to another episode of the passing shot this weekend would have marked of course Wimbledon finals weekend so what better time to reminisce and think about some of the the most dramatic moments from the championships over the last decade Kim I've got my I've got my strawberries and cream I've got my jug of pims and uh, yeah I'm looking forward we're gonna do a little we're gonna do a little countdown yeah, we are. I've got some Robinsons to go with my uh, with our podcast today because I, I I can't find the pims. It's at the back of my cupboard somewhere. Um, but yeah, we've decided that actually we normally do top eight moments, but there's so many moments from Wimbledon over the past decade that we were kind of looking back through and we thought, oh, there's just eight is just not enough. So we're kind of doing this in two parts, aren't we, Joel? We're going to have 16 moments in total, but we're just going to kind of do the first eight today and and see how we go. But there's just so many to kind of talk through. I'm also, uh, just to mention as well, I'm in my all whites as well. So I'm really <laughs> getting into kind of like, I'm getting into the the Wimbledon, the Wimbledon spirit. And uh, yeah, th- listeners, thanks for, thanks for getting in touch this week. We did put a tweet out to ask you what are some of your dramatic moments from the you know from the last decade and uh, yeah we really appreciate you getting in touch who knows maybe your moment will appear on the list but uh, yes we will of course say caveat this is our list this is purely our opinion we think it's a pretty good list um you know there are some moments that you will be familiar with but we think there are some moments i feel that have been you know maybe kind of not you might not as be as familiar with but yeah let's kind of get on let's get on into it starting at uh, number 16 in our countdown and it's one i guess you know for british fans it is a very a memorable i would say a fairy tale story we're we're going back to 2016 and it's marcus willis and uh you know his run from you know pre wimbledon pre-Wimbledon qualifying to qualifying to the main draw to playing Roger Federer. Is this more of a fairy tale, Joel, than Peter Colt winning Wimbledon in in the film (laughs) that we discussed on our last podcast? Uh, Possibly so. Yeah, I feel like some of our listeners from like overseas might not even know of this story. They might even have never heard of Marcus Willis. I mean, a lot of British fans probably hadn't uh, until 2016. and yeah, he came through the qualifying. So he was ranked down at like 772 in the world. Um, qualified, won all his matches in qualifying, obviously. Um, and then came up against Ricardus Barankis of, I think he's Lithuanian uh, in the first round. Beat him, uh, which, you know, that alone is kind of 
pretty wow considering his ranking and the disparity between between the two players. And then who does he then face in the second round? No one but Roger Federer himself. So obviously that was going to be prime on centre court. Um, and I guess there's two camps, isn't it? It's kind of like, oh, Marcus Willis got through to the second round. It's so annoying he's playing Federer. He could have you know, had a chance against someone else. But then the other side is that actually, if he's going to get through to the second round at Wimbledon for like probably the only time in his career, he might as well mm. get an appearance on centre court and play, you know, the, the greatest champion uh, that Wimbledon's ever seen. Yeah, I think I'm in the I think I'm in the second camp. I think it's if I'm going to go out, I want to go out in style and, you know, what a better way to, you know, to go out um to have, you know, to have, you know, one of the greatest of all time, one of the greatest grass court players of all time, um, you know, across from across from you from the net. I think the story for me is so remarkable because, you know, the 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 ingrained image I have in my head of Marcus Willis is um is actually before this. It wasn't it's not this moment. It was um, he was on like um, he was like on a challenger tour event and he had like a can of Coke and a Mars bar <laughs> in like a changeover wow. uh, during one of his matches. And uh, the commentator was like, uh, I think the commentator, I can't remember who it was, but basically called him Cartman from from South Park um, and was like, is this is this guy for real? Is he is this guy really having like, a you know, a kind of a kind of soft drink uh you know in the middle of uh you know a tennis match on the on the challenger tour and um you know it just shows i think it just shows you the just the the, the it was just crazy yeah the the way he went from you know this sort of uh, you know position where you know he wasn't really kind of you know yes he was kind of talented but you know i don't think he was really you know applying himself um but it shows you i think it's a story that shows you that if you do apply yourself incredible things can happen and um you know he went from literally like you know a few months before coaching at his you know local mm, tennis club yeah. uh you know asking getting 30 pounds an hour for tennis lessons uh to yeah said to court said to court roger federer thank you very much yeah i remember at the time the story about how he was kind of coaching like locally and that you know he wasn't really actually playing that much and he'd kind of turned to other things within tennis to kind of get his in- income um and i i remember as well you know i think like the first few months of that yeah he he had only won something like 400 dollars or something ridiculous from from prize money so just think what a big um you know surge into his income like second round prize money at wimbledon must have been and i think you know these things for these sorts of players like they don't come along very often it's literally once in a blue moon and you know you might be a player ranked around 700 and never get an opportunity like this so I think you know he just made the most of it and like he came on to I think the Wimbledon highlight show that's been on in in the UK the other day and you know he's obviously still really like happy and grateful for this this opportunity in this moment and I think actually he did say he struggled quite a bit after it um, because I guess the idea is that you've had this great experience and then you want to move on and, and, you know, onwards and upwards. And then actually to kind of go back to just playing futures and and chalets and going back to doing like local coaching was probably quite difficult to deal with because you'd be comparing to like this amazing experience that you had. Um, So I guess it probably also poses challenges as well. But if you just look at this moment on its own, it was remarkable. And actually the actual match against Federer, he didn't do too badly. I think he got bageled in the first set. But he came back and won about seven games of things. So it was perfectly respectable. And I, I think the crowd, you know, were obviously very um, 
appreciative, you know, of of course of his, of his efforts. Yeah, I think I remember when I was watching that match, I was like, it, it had already in that first set. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're in the second round of Wimbledon and it felt like an exhibition atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, someone like Roger Federer could come up against, you know, a player like Marcus Willis in the second round. It just felt, um, you know, almost like too good to be true. And I think, you know, it was, it, it, it was kind of, um, yeah, I remember that first set, yeah, feeling very sort of exhibition-y and, you know, it was that point where, you know, he won the first, ge- he won his first game and it was like, you know, he got an applause and <laughs> I was almost kind of glad, like, it wasn't like, just like, a, you know, he, it wasn't just like, oh, I got a novelty game off Roger Federer. You know, he did, he did, I think I kind of overcome maybe the, you know, the nerves and you know, potentially the stage fright of playing on, on centre court to really kind of, you know, test, you know, test at times, um, you know, Federer. And I know there's that great, um, I think it was voted like point of the tournament. He did that. He had like a, I think he, he had a lob him. against, yeah. Yeah, it was a great point. I think they showed that on the highlights recently. And I mean, it is, you know, you can't help but smile because it was like an amazing lob of Federer. And it was just, yeah, <laughs> it was kind of like, I might be losing here, but I can still come up with something, you know, mm. marvelous like that. So, um, yeah, I think also as well, this is kind of just talking about the next Grand Slam that's due to take place, the US Open. This is exactly the sort of thing we perhaps won't be getting now that they've got rid of qualifying for the US Open, which is such a shame because obviously these are the stories that, you know, we love to watch and hear about and, it gives a spotlight to players that would normally, you know, never um, get talked about really. So um, it was obviously just one of those real stories to cherish, especially for British tennis fans. And, and, you know, it's just remarkable really. But yeah, I think um, I, I hope we get more of these, you know, not just from British players, but it's uh, heartwarming stories. It does feel like when they do happen, you know, grass, grass court and like the you know the uniqueness of being on a grass court uh, like lends itself to these sorts of moments where you know if you are really good on a grass court you can certainly play way above your ranking you know the fact that he had fallen to what 772 by the start of Wimbledon it just shows you that if you are really really good on a surface it Rank, almost kind of rankings go out the window and mm. you know the fact that he beat Barankis he was I think he was kind of around like you know 50 odd in the world and I think he yep. defeated him in in straight sets it just shows you I think what's so magic what's so magical about playing a, a, on a grass court and a, you know at the championships it can it can really elevate it can really elevate your game and um it can take yeah it can take you places that uh you might you might not have got to you know, maybe on a, a different court surface. Yeah, I think it is a bit of a leveller and, you know, some players just really hate grass and don't do well on it at all. So I'm not sure if Barankas it is, would be, you know, considered one of those players. I don't think so. But um, interestingly as well, he beat um, Rublev in the final round of qualifying, I think, uh, Marcus Willis. So oh, did obviously Rublev, this was back in like four years ago, so it wouldn't be the same player that, you know, he's been recently but um yeah really that was also a very good win um in in qualies so yeah I mean this is a great moment I think to kick off our list Joel and um with with that we'll we'll move on to our next moment I think um which again is I think a moment that a lot of people perhaps wouldn't know about maybe um, or would have forgotten about and that is this is perhaps a bit niche but Yaroslava Shvedova's <laughs> golden set 
against Sarah Irani um, in 2012. So this was the remarkable uh, feat of a player winning every single point of the first set, obviously, 24 straight points in a row, which really doesn't happen very often in tennis. Um, I think the only previous player to have done this before Schwedeber was someone um, who I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I've never heard of this person. Correct me, listeners, if, if he's a very famous player. Bill Scanlon, um, who did it in a tournament in Australia in 1983. And after him, it was only Schwedeber who has managed to achieve a golden set in tennis, um, at least professional yeah. tennis, obviously, up your local park, someone might have done it, um, but that <laughs> won't count, really, will it? <laughs> yeah, I think I think to this day, uh, this golden set is the only golden set to have happened at a in a main draw at a Grand Slam, which makes it you know it's a pretty unique distinction. And you know, I think what what amazes me again about it is Shvedova was, uh, I think she was going into the match against Irani as world number sixty five. Irani was the tenth seed. Yeah. She just got to the final of the French Open, I think, Iran. It was, I think it was the same year, wasn't it? 2012, when she got to that French final. It was very, um, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those things where you don't, uh, if you're a spectator and you're kind of watching it, you're not expecting kind of the 10th seed to lose lose the first set in, in 15 minutes. But um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it was kind of, um, yeah, I think it's just like a little, it's a little piece of history, isn't it? And I, 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 what was fascinating in the kind of research for this was Shvedova in, tw- in, in 2006 uh, was very close to achieving the golden set. She rattled it off 23 straight points against Amy Fraser in the last 16 at Memphis, but she lost the next point. So she was obviously really um, disappointed. Um, but um, she went on to lose the match. So she went on to lose the match one six six love six love <laughs> absolutely bizarre that's a crazy scoreline to dominate so much in the first set that you like <laughs> only lose like say one point and then to get double bagel i mean what was going on with that one my god um but yeah shvedova <laughs> obviously likes to completely make this a, a habit saying as she almost did it uh six years before but yeah the wimbledon um yeah it was the third round against sarani and she hit four races and 14 winners. So if anyone was at that match, they might have, you know, walked out quite soon, I think, at the the, the change of ends between the sets, thinking, well, this is one-way traffic. I'm going to get out of here. Or maybe they stayed to see if she could um, make it a golden match. Because imagine, you know, imagine mm. if she'd done it again. I, it's mad. The more I think about it, this is like the complete opposite to like a John Isner, Nicholas Mahu classic, isn't it? When... <laughs> You know, there's going to be no breaks of serve. We're going to end up at 60, 58 or whatever. This was like, get on the court, win 24 points in a row, boom, first set in the bag. Um, And yeah, I love the fact that Shvedova on Twitter said, uh, after the achievement, she said, today I laid a golden egg. Uh, So that was her way of describing a golden set. She called it, I laid a golden egg. I suppose also the tournament organisers, if there was rain forecast, they'd be like, yes, like this is what we need. We need the quickest matches ever to get through <laughs> yeah. the schedule. You think the tournament organiser was like, it, it, you know, they're like, you know, when they're ever in a situation where it's like they've not got enough time, there's fading light. 
get me Shvedover on the court because I know that she can get <laughs> she through can a first set really quickly. Her. I mean, Sarah Irani, <laughs> I'm just thinking, she's not known for like the greatest service. She She's probably quite easy to break. No. And she's probably not the most comfortable on grass, perhaps. I mean, I would say she's more mm. of a clay court. I mean, she's more of a doubles expert. Specialist. More of a doubles expert. Than yeah. A... Um, I wonder what it felt like. To, it must have been quite demoralizing for, for Irani and, and her fans. So uh, I'm sure she's quite pleased to have been sort of in the history books uh, in some way, though, perhaps. <laughs> but yeah, it's just not one of those things you, you don't really go out and think about this, but it's just nice, you know, when, when these things happen, uh, those scoreboard stories that we love so much. But yeah, let's move, let's move on to our, our next moment, number 14, number 14 on our list. And we're going to go back to, to 2016. And again, it's another British entry and it's Heather Watson and her partner, uh continent uh forget henry continent sorry henry continent uh winning the mixed doubles uh at wimbledon in 2016 which you know for me the reason this is on this list because this was like this is not a very this was not like an established mixed doubles pair this was uh you know this was a it felt like a very scratch pairing you know i read um in the build-up they only got together after an introduction from the former British player Chris Eaton. I love how like mixed doubles like teams come about like from like oh by the way do you want me to introduce you? To yeah. I always thought it would be a bit more like scientific than that. Well, I think whatever floats your boat. I mean, however you get together, but I think it tends to be these sorts of random pairings that go on and, and win surprise titles like this, um, which is it's nice, isn't it? And I'm sure Chris Eaton is very pleased with himself. Um, but yeah, like this, it, I just remember it being such a nice way of ending the championships because obviously the mixed doubles final is like the last match to be played. And it was kind of like, oh, they've done really well to get to the final. Um, you know, that's great um, that she's done it. But then to actually go all the way and, and you know, to win the title is fabulous and obviously for heather watson she's had her heartbreaks at wimbledon hasn't she so it was lovely to, that she's actually sort of walking away with a title um and obviously not many british well i suppose she's actually the only female british player to have won a grand slam title um of any form in in the last however many years i think i'd be correct in saying <laughs> Yeah, certainly in the most, uh, you know, in, in kind of recent history. And I think, uh, you know, as you said, she, Heather has had her heartbreaks at Wimbledon and, you know, uh, we, we, you know, we will come on to them. But, you know, in this tournament, uh, you know, in the singles competition, you know, she she had three match points in the first round against uh, Annika Beck. And, you know, she ended up she ended up losing. I think it was a match that went over like three days because of rain. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, she she, you know all credit to her she would have had to you know obviously pick herself back up and um you know she went from a very low point i guess at the very start of the tournament where she would have had a, obviously a lot of ambition to you know maybe get to like the second week for example to you know at the very end of the the championships where you know she was lifting the mixed doubles crown yeah exactly and and also at the time you know Con henry constant um now you know you think of as quite an established doubles player but actually at the time um he had never been beyond the second round of any you know doubles uh, event in a slam before so this might have kind of kick-started his his i don't know resurgence to the top of the doubles game because after this i think he he went on to win we well, certainly won a, a men's doubles slam and i think he's won the world tour final so 
um, you know, looking back, I was I was surprised actually that at that time he himself wasn't really an established, you know, doubles player. So they really were both kind of, um, you know, just wild cards. And um, interestingly, they were given a bit of luck quite early on because their first two rounds were walkovers. So I guess they only ended up playing, what, three matches? Um, I think you only have to win five in the mixed doubles. So they would have only played three to win the title, if I'm if I'm correct. But you know, I'm not trying to take away anything from their victory, but I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that did help slightly. <laughs> um, but the, you know, they backed it up a year later because they got to the final again. Um, but they lost to Jamie Murray and, and Martina Hingis. So you know, we'll allow that. Uh, you know, they lost to fellow <laughs> Brits. So, but yeah, like obviously. Um, it was just a kind of a dream for Heather and it was just such a nice partnership. You know, they were always very smiley and happy on court. And and I think, you know, like Jamie Murray showed with, with Jankovic all those years before, um, when you see those partnerships on court, obviously they're gelling really well together and just having fun as well as getting down to work. You know, that's really nice to see as, as a fan. Do you think, um, I was just thinking back to Chris Eaton, do you think he, after the tournament, do you think um, he asked for a finder's fee? Uh, <laughs> some commission. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, some commission for the, the title. Well, do you reckon he was like, oh, do you know, I really should have like put a percentage on, in a on their earnings on their earnings in the tournament? Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, who knows? Maybe maybe that's what we should go into, like do some kind of, <laughs> I don't know, analysis on who would be compatible doubles partners and then take some commission out of it. Um, but yeah, absolutely great story. And I think obviously the mixed doubles, it's kind of one of those competitions which does throw up these sorts of surprises. And, and that's why, you know, um, I love it so much. And, you know, another thing that we won't be seeing actually at the US Open this year, mm. and there's no mixed doubles. Yeah. So we won't have these moments uh so much in 2020 um let's move on to our next moment um i'm not really sure i want to discuss this one so much joel <laughs> because <laughs> we're talking about early well not just one match but several here and that is the kind of early round upsets for um well we've put fed out but it mostly concerns rafa <laughs> And one match that Federer lost quite early on. Um, I suppose the most famous one would be Rafa against Lucas Russell in 2012, um, which wow. was a that was second round, wasn't it? Yeah, second round match. I was at the I was at the match. Um, I got a resale, so I kind of came in about halfway through, and all I remember was the crowd was. I felt like they were baying for Rafa's blood. They were so like intense they were so like vocal it was such a sort of surprise this guy was just like I don't know displaying like a barrage of ground strokes and just dominating Rafa and you know Rafa just seemed on the back foot and I he took the fourth set and it went into a fifth but I was kind of you know praying and hoping he would come through but it just wasn't to be and and that was I think you know up to that point Rafa the last kind of however many years he'd made the Wimbledon final or, or won it, you know, since kind of 2006. So this was suddenly a really big shock that he was losing in the second round. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it, you know, it was a big shock. I, you know, I, I guess the question I have to you, if you, you know, you were there, you know, I think a lot of uh, the question I have with a lot of these kind of early upsets that have happened, you know, Luke, you've talked about Rosso, Dustin Brown, Steve, Steve Darcy. Darcy so I was at that match <laughs> as well. <laughs> um you know, do you do you feel like these are players who are having, you know, that that one moment, that match of their life, 
against Rafa and Nadal on a grass court and it's it's bringing them up a level? Or do you think, you know, this was more Nadal just, you know, I guess, tired from the French Open, you know, hasn't really had a lot of time on a grass court um, and is not, you know, and is playing a, a level below, you know, what we would have expected? I think, yeah, it's a bit of both, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, we know Rafa can play extremely well on grass as you know has his record before 2012 showed and 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 also you know in the last couple of years um I think he did say like he struggled for a number of years um I think because of his knees and like the low bounce and I I don't think he wanted to draw too much attention to kind of physical things but I think there was an element of that that um kicked the wind out of his sails a bit but certainly these these guys like Russell played you know the match of his life um same with Steve Darcy's. And I think, you know, as it went on, they kind of saw that Rafa had been losing in, you know, some of the early rounds and they thought, well, mm. hey, the opportunity's there, you know. And um, I think, yeah, it was about four years in a row that Rafa didn't get beyond the fourth round. Um, and I sort of kind of got used to him inevitably bowing out early, um, <laughs> which is why actually the last, you know, getting to like the semifinals last year was, I think, fabulous for Rafa, like, a, you know, compared to what he was doing in like 2012 and 13, you know, mm. I'll take seven finals. Um, but certainly I think, I don't think any of the players that beat him, like Russell, Darcy's, I think in their next match, they all lost to um, whoever their opponent was. So I don't think they were able to kind of continue that form and back it up. It was kind of a flash in the pan moment as well. You you, t- you say Russell, Brown, Darcy's. I feel like Darcy's is the odd one out there because Dustin Brown on his day on a grass court, mm. we've seen that he's almost, you would say, I would argue he's almost a grass court specialist. You know, we don't really hear a lot of him, I guess, you know, of, you know, of the rest of the year. But when he is on a grass court, he is a very, he is a very handy player. So, you know, I can, can see, can kind of see an upset there. Russell as well. I mean, I just always, I always remember that match. His serving was absolutely mm. electric. On the money. And he just wasn't, he wasn't literally giving Rafa a, chance to get in the rally because he was just hitting you know first serve after first serve after serve but yeah Darcy feels an odd one because he's not really a sort of you know imposing player who can you know have you on the back foot from the start of the point yeah he was very sort of light and nimble came into the net a lot I think I think maybe that year Rafa genuinely was struggling a lot more with with injury. Mm. I can't remember now because it's all they all blur into <laughs> one. I think and you just don't uh, want to remember, do you? No, Kim? I don't because I'd camp for like <laughs> these. Ma- well, I'd camp for the Darcy match, and you know I'd got prime seats, and it was like, oh, this wasn't <laughs> what I wanted to happen. But I think me and my kind of Rafa fen- friends that I was with, we were just kind of like, oh, big size all round. It's happened again. Um, but I think that year, 2013, when Rafa lost to Darcy's, what was kind of incredibly surprising was that in the second round, a certain Roger Federer lost. Uh, and for me, this was probably even more of a shock than, yeah, the Rafa mm. Russell loss because, you know, Federer to lose in the second round at Wimbledon is something that I never thought I would see you know in my lifetime and I remember watching um like the end of this on Hemman Hill and I was just like absolutely aghast because Stokowski who was ranked 116 in the world you know took Federer out in four sets and I don't think anyone saw that coming no it was it was very uh yeah 
I think it's one of the biggest ups, plain and simply. I think it's one of the biggest upsets of all time um, at a at a Grand Slam, and I think that's kind of what makes me kind of surprised. I feel like this match has almost been. I feel like it's been forgotten about because I, you know, we always kind of focus on all of Federer's, you know, achievements. Um, I feel like we forget that you know he almost lost. Yeah, he lost to to Starkovsky in in 2013, and you know, I was watching the highlights earlier, and I do think this was a. I, I think Federer was sort of going through a slump, but I, I just think Starkovsky on his, he just, just, you know, it, something happened to him. He, he almost, I think in his press conference afterwards, he kind of talked about, I think he performed a miracle or like, mm. you know, it, he had, he was playing a level of tennis that, um, it, you know, he was playing a level of tennis. Maybe it was even, he had even surprised himself with, you know, you know, what he, what he was doing and what, you know, what he had done. And, it, you know, it's just, yeah, I, I mean, for me, actually, Federer versus Starkovsky is actually kind of trumps all of the, the the Rafa losses for me in terms of drama and you know how dramatic it mm. was. The fact that um, you know, I think it was Federer's earliest Grand Slam exit since losing in the first round of the you know the French Open in two thousand three, and you know it's not against you know it's not like against an up and coming Alex Zverev or. You know, Nick, you know, Nick Kyrgios, a dangerous sort of floater. It, you know, it's it's Sergey Starkovsky, who, you know, is a you know, if you look at his results, he's a he's a very solid player who, you know, gets to you know the third round in, I think he's got to the third round in all of the you know, Grand Slams kind of in singles. Um, but you know, he's not, um, you know, he's just very solid. You do, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect him to have sort of weapons that can you know do you know do 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 the damage to you know take out you know Roger Federer on uh, you know at Wimbledon yeah i think it was just like the match of his life i just remember he was at the net all the time and just taking everything away from federer and i think as well i don't know if there was a rain delay or two in the match i think it, i'm sure it was a wet day um i remember the, the clouds were quite dark and there was a certain sort of eeriness and i don't know it was almost like this match was just like electrifying a quite dull kind of um, environment. I did. That's kind of my overriding memory, but I may <laughs> be wrong. But yeah, it was just sort of wow, and it, it made me feel a bit better about um, Rafa having lost in the first <laughs> round. I was like, well, they're just dropping like flies now, and obviously this is the year that Andy Murray goes on to win. So uh, I'm sure him and Novak were quite pleased as well to see Federer and Nadal mm. out so early. Um, but yeah, absolute kind of. I think, as you said, it you know not just Wimbledon is one of the biggest shocks um, all round. And actually, I know Federer's had a few more surprising losses in Slam since then. Not not so early as the second round, but um, at this time though, twenty thirteen, you know, this was you know he was the defending champion and just seemed un- kind of untouchable. So, um, absolutely incredible stuff. So, Joel, um, we mentioned Heather Watson's heartbreak earlier on um, when we talked about her winning the mixed doubles, um, you know, and overcoming that and having some joy at Wimbledon at last. And actually, if we rewind a year before she won her mixed doubles title um, to 2015, I think most people, well, I hope that most people would be able to remember this match because it was a third round match, uh, Heather Watson against Serena Williams. And she was quite remarkably two points from beating Serena at Wimbledon on centre court. Um, I mean, I remember watching this and it was just, I just, I don't think I've seen Heather Watson play so well in her whole life. Um, and this, I mean, would have been absolutely her 
her greatest victory, but she came ever so close but couldn't quite get over the finish line. I think when I was kind of looking at that matchup, I was thinking... I was actually thinking, oh, Watson's going to get eaten alive here, and <laughs> she would do she would do very well to to win a set. But you know, I think I came home from I came from home from wherever that day, and I turned on the TV, and you know, I remember seeing, yeah, Heather Watson was it was one set all, and she had moved. I think she was moved three love up in the decider, and I was like, Heather Watson's going to do. I think Heather Watson's <laughs> going to do this. What is like, going on? I don't. Yeah, I I didn't I didn't think that she was going to like blow. I don't. I, I don't really associate like Heather Watson with like blow like blowing like a lead, and you know I didn't I didn't think even though kind of you shed Serena on the other side of the net, the fact that I think I think she just fed off the energy of the you know the British crowd, and um, you know for me I was like I, I think that was the thing that was going to get her through, that was going to pull her through, but um, you know we all know you know we all know how it ended up, you know Serena Williams came through and won and actually went on to win. Um, her sixth Wimbledon crown. I think she she defeated um, Muguruza in the final. But you know, this was a. I think this was a real scare for her in in terms of kind of. I think she had you know had serene progress, but um, she had a had a real scare here. And you know, we when we think about you know the greats of the game kind of going onto the onto the court of Wimbledon and. As you said, it it's almost kind of like I felt like the crowd were almost like baying for blood. They were all mm. you know, it was all obviously pro Watson. And, you know, it was almost like, I don't care who's on the other side of the net. It, it, it could be the greatest of all, of all time. I'm still going to cheer for, I'm still going to cheer for Heather Watson. Well, I mean, even if she wasn't British, the, you know, the Wimbledon crowd absolutely love an upset, don't they? And an underdog. I mean, Heather Watson, yeah, she, she lost the first set so easily. And you sort of thought, okay, this is par for the course. But the fact that she kind of, yeah, suddenly turned it round and went three love up in the third set. Amazing. And she actually had a point for fall off. Um, and I wonder mm. if, if she'd gone fall off up. I, I just wonder if that would have made the difference. I, I don't know. Um, but as it happened, you know, Serena came back and I mean, it's not like Heather completely collapsed and lost that set 6-3. You know, she lost it 7-5 in the end and was, was so, so close. So she mm. she certainly should be proud of, of her efforts and, you know, not be too... I hope she wasn't too crushed afterwards, but I mean, it'd be hard not to be thinking what could have been. No, and I think you know, I think yeah, Heather Watson certainly this season has come back into. She's played herself back into into form. You know, she's looking. You know, for me, she's like almost kind of looking like the old Heather Watson. I just hope you know when all is said and done, you know, we're not looking back on her career and her defining moment is losing to Serena Williams. I think mm. you know her achievements kind of speak for herself. And yes, this was sort of a. You know, a moment I think that kind of put her on the map and, in, you know, obviously endeared her to the, the British public. But, you know, she's gone on. I think she's gone on to, you know, she's gone on to certainly, um, you know, becoming an improved tennis player. And I think, you know, a, a match like this, uh, or as, as painful as it, as it might be, have, have kind of, I think, helped helped her with that. Um, specifically, I always remember when I was watching this match, her second serves just got absolutely like it was like, it was almost like a free winner. I remember for some of them for Serena Williams. And yeah. I, you know, I wonder if like, for example, she looks like matches it like this and think, you know, this, I need a better second serve because otherwise, you know, like the top players are just going to absolutely kind of climb all over it. And um, yeah, as I said, I think this was kind of a good, a painful lesson, but certainly a, a worthwhile lesson to, you know, figure out how do I, you know, close the gap between myself and, you know, the top players. 
Absolutely. I think these sorts of big matches certainly highlight, um, you know, discrepancies and disparities and make things a bit more obvious. And, you know, there's a lot more international gaze, you know, on, on you as well, rather than just playing out on court 11 or what have you. Um, let's, talking of painful defeats, though, Joel, <laughs> the next one that we're going to discuss. Oh, I just, Number I, 11. I wince, I wince uh, at the sort of thought that this player never um, quite managed to win Wimbledon. And I would, if I could, yeah, if there was one result that I could go back and change, like I would, it would be this match, I think. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know I'm a Rafa fan, but I, I before Rafa, I, I was a, quite a, a big Roddick fan, certainly at Wimbledon. Um, and, he, you know, because he reached those finals in uh, 2004, 2005, um, I you know I was I remember cheering for him then and and then obviously Rafa kind of came along and was in you know every final for the next three years and so come two thousand and nine oh Roddick's back in the final you know Rafa's not there he's he's off injured um, and I thought oh was this third time lucky for, for Andy Roddick but but it wasn't to be and oh I just sixteen fourteen in the fifth set is just so like I I don't I'm sort of can't. I don't know what the right words are, but it was just such a oh, it was such a dramatic day watching that, and for him to come so close and lose is just oh, you know. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, just thinking about it, you know, I think you know, obviously the you know the, the story of Andy Roddick is he's got I think one Grand Slam to show for it, U.S. Mm. Open two thousand three. Um, you look at his game and you think that is absolutely perfect for a grass court. And um, he, you know, fundamentally, he should have he should have more Grand Slam titles. He mm. would have had more Grand Slam titles if you know Roger Federer wasn't on the you know the other the other on the other side of the net when you know he was getting there. And um, you know, I, I think this, as you said, is this was probably the most painful of you know of the defeats. The fact that you know, put in so much effort. And, you know, he lost 16-14 in the fifth. I think I was reading somewhere the only time his serve got broken was for the match. Mm, and yeah. that that must be very, oh, you know, that must be very frustrating. You know, it must be very frustrating. And, you know, to to come, you know, to come so close um, and, yeah, to come so close and, and not kind of, you know, get over the line it's you know third you think you think third time yeah you just you just think you'd have a little bit you know i know roger federer's game i know what he's going to do how do i combat it and you felt like potentially this was this was that moment i remember just thinking how jammy federer was you know for managing to to kind of scrape through this one really because yeah in the first four sets um you know federer won his two sets on tie breaks um, and Roddick was the only one to have actually broken serve in the first four sets. So, you know, they were extremely, like both of them, extremely comfortable on serve. And then I think Roddick had some break points in the fifth set to, and he would have gone 9-8 and then obviously served for it, um, but obviously didn't manage to, to take those. And then as it went on and on and on, he just started flagging and et obviously got the crucial break. But Oh, I just, you know, in a way, it's it, for me, it kind of parallels last year's final with, with Federer and Novak because Novak um, Novak won, you know, all the tie breaks uh, in that match last year and kind of, you kind of thought Federer was probably the one that should have won or maybe 
I don't mm. want to say the word deserve, but you know, you felt that he was the closest. Obviously, he had championship points in that match as well. And this is kind of reversal where Federer is the one in 2009 that managed to come through when arguably I think Roddick was the better player in this match and, and you know, should <laughs> should have won. But oh, and I remember Federer getting out um, one of those embossed jackets with like a gold 15 on. And I thought, oh no, is that just rubbing rubbing it in a bit that, you know, he's he's won it again and Roddick's left with nothing. I think that's what makes it so dramatic is that there were mo- there were moments in this match where if Roddick had capitalised, you would have thought he could go on to, to win it. And, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was watching, I was actually watching the YouTube highlights of it earlier and there was a point in that second set tie break. I think he had like a backhand, high backhand volley. And if he had put it away, I think he would have gone two set. I think he would have gone two sets up. I think he had a set point in that second set. And, you know, it, it was uh, it was essentially, you know that that was the that was the match right there. If he had gone two sets up, you know, mm. it, it could have been a it could have been a different story. Mm. Um, but um, you know, I think I think when if you, if you kind of talk to Andy Roddick, I think he's kind of a bit like you know, it would have been great to have more Grand Sams, but you know, I got to play you know with some of the greatest you know greatest of all times. I got to share a court with you know the the greatest. Of, the greatest of all times and um you know it, it's just yeah it, it's just he was in that in that era where you know, Federer could could dominate yeah he's certainly one of the I don't know the generation that have have missed out a bit because of that and and you know I mean I've, he's played his part and obviously ha- has these memories and hopefully he's looking at it from a more positive perspective but <laughs> I just remember thinking oh come on like this is it's got to be your moment, but you know, not all sporting stories are quite uh, written in a sort of fairy tale ending. So it was not to be. But yeah, I, I remember this one just absolutely stands out, stands out in the memory. But Joel, what have we got next? What's number ten on our on our list on our countdown? Ooh. So number ten, we are going to go back to the ladies final in 2013, and you know, we were actually having a debate about this about what what was more dramatic um was it the fact that we had a sabine lizicki versus marion bartley final which you know you wouldn't have probably expected at the start of the the, the championships was it bartley winning the, the title or was it sabine lizicki getting just getting to the final um i think there's there's cases almost for all three um i think i would say I think for me, maybe the most dramatic was, um, I think it was just the final in general, because, you know, Bartley, um, I think, you know, Bart- Bartley is almost unfairly look- looked on in terms of, um, you know, this, I think this specifically, this like this Grand Slam win, because, you know, we were talking earlier about the, um, you know, the the, the caliber of, of players that she faced on, you know, en route to the final, um, you know, it, they it was a very kind it was a very kind draw, but it's that classic sort of you can only beat what's in front of you. And to win Wimbledon, she had to go out there seven times, win seven matches, which she did so, and she won all of them in straight sets. So I I think it's a bit unfair, to, you know, to think almost you know if there are people out there who kind of think oh yeah, but um you know it it might be kind of tainted a little bit but i don't i don't i don't i don't agree with that because as i said she she still had to win seven matches and um you know she she um and she did it very 
uh, you know, she did it very dominantly. Yeah, and I think as well, like people maybe often forget that she had reached a Wimbledon final before, you know, back in 2007. Um and she lost to Venus in, in that final. And But I think most famously from that uh, tournament in, in 07 was when she beat Justine Ennan in the semis. And um, I remember Pierce Brosnan was at the match and she I remember her talking about <laughs> how she thought, oh, I you know, couldn't lose if, if James Bond is watching. Um, I just remember all that in the media. It was quite funny. Um, so, like, we have to give Barsley credit. You know, she had, like, history and, and form at Wimbledon. So... You know, to suddenly get yourself back into the final six years later and to do it without dropping a set and then to win comfortably and convincingly in that final, um, I think was was very, you know, very impressive. Um, I know Lizicki got very nervous. She, you know, wasn't able to play the tennis that we had seen her play previously in the tournament when she'd beaten uh, Serena, I think, in the quarterfinals. Um, but yeah, Barsley was just very very you know solid and she did what she needed to do and I think remarkably as well like obviously Barsley retired after this match basically didn't she and she just couldn't go on any longer with kind of injuries that she had but this was um her 47th her 47th Grand Slam tournament which I think is the most um certainly for a female player um most number of, of Grand Slams played before actually winning a Grand Slam title so you know it had been a long time coming and so I think as a sort of storyline, it was just so like gratifying to see that she you know, finally she's kind of crossed the finish line and, and to do it at Wimbledon, I, you know, I'm sure that just is the icing on the cake, you know, compared to the other slams. It's, it, it does have that extra special edge. It's interesting because I think both these players are very, you know, their, you know, their careers are over and, you know, I think they're, you know, you look back at their legacy and I think, both these players, their legacy lies at Wimbledon. And, you know, I think particularly for Lizicki, you, you called it out. And it's the, you know, her crown, I think her crowning achievement was beating Serena Williams. And, I, and that for me was, you know, that was a big moment. And I wondered whether, you know, maybe the media were thinking going into the final, actually, Lizicki's the favourite. She beat Serena in, you know, en route, whereas Bartley's not really. They faced anyone and you know maybe that sort of you know not going in as a favorite for Bartley almost kind of helped her just get on with her game whereas maybe I mean I don't know but you know maybe Lizicki felt like maybe she felt the kind of the pressure maybe from the media or the fact that you know she'd beaten Serena and, and you know she she wouldn't have needed to you know almost like back it up to go on and and, and win the the title um but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was looking kind of at that that tournament, and it is very funny because you look at the the players in the quarterfinals, and it, it did genuinely feel like anyone could have win it. I mean, Lizicki, Kanepi, Radvanska, Lenar, Sloane Stevens, uh, Barry and Bartley, and then Kvitova and Flipkins. Um, you know, on at the bottom half, you'd you know, you're almost kind of expecting maybe a Kvitova. Radvanska final but um mm, yeah it was a very it was a very surprise it was a very surprising final it was and I think actually when you read out those names you think what what did Radvanska not do to get through to the final because she'd got to the final the year before this and you know Kvitova would have already won it once by then so yeah like surprising but it's um it just goes to show you know that I mean we said this before but you know the women's game is is generally a lot more unpredictable and that's for me like often the most fun thing for me to follow is women's tennis because there is so much more opportunity for these kind of 
stories to kind of emerge. And I think Barsley was always unfairly overlooked. I think people um, always kind of overlooked her her talent and how good she actually was. And, Mm. you know, I think we've seen that as well with certain pundits in the media making uh, uh, erroneous remarks about her. And, um, you know, I think she's sort of got a bit of a hard lot um, a lot of the time. But yeah, this this moment is 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 right up there. I mean, it was such a it was just such a heartwarming thing <laughs> to see her finally kind of get a slam, and you know, after forty seven attempts, basically, <laughs> is um, never give up. You know, it may happen. <laughs> and Kim, just on on Vadvanska because Lizicky Vadvanska in the semi final uh, was actually a bit of a classic because Lizicky came through that six four two six nine seven in in the third set. So Vadvanska. You know, one of those players where she's probably in that category of some of the best players who've never won, mm. who never won a, a Grand Slam. And, you know, maybe she she was probably in that semi-final thinking, oh, this, this could be my moment. But um, Bart- Bartley kind of came through, um, you know, Bartley came through and maybe Radvanska, you know, took it out of Lizicki in that, in that semi that, that made it a little bit easier. I think that's probably the case, you know, 9-7 on a semi. That's a lot of energy, isn't it? And tr- drama to kind of contend with. And then to be mm. in your first Grand Slam final like two days later, that, that would be quite a lot to deal with. I mean, I, I don't know how how they managed to kind of... I think I'd be an absolute barrage of nerves if I even so much stepped out onto a tennis court. But um, <laughs> let's let's finish up today, Joel, with our ninth uh, moment. Um, so, you know, in our next episode, we'll be doing kind of one to eight or eight to one. Um, so to end today, we're going to kind of go back to a bit of British success from that glorious summer that was 2012. Um, and we had a, yeah, a British men's doubles champion, uh, Johnny Murray. And his lovely Danish partner, Freddie Nielsen, who is one of my personal favourites. Um, and I guess it was this victory that kind of got me um, following following Freddie Nielsen, actually, because this was, again, a complete kind of scratch pairing. Um, and they were wild cards. They went on to win the men's doubles. I mean, this is kind of Peter Cole, isn't it? But just in doubles. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, if you just look at kind of, it's it's just oh, I don't know. Any time uh, someone wins a tournament as a wild card, <laughs> it is a great story. It's a great story. It is, isn't I it? know. Yeah. Um. I think like Johnny Murray, like he was due to play with someone else, and then they weren't actually highly ranked enough to get into the tournament. So he kind of hooked up with Freddie Nilsson. They got a wild card. Um. And you know Johnny Murray, kind of a bit of a journeyman. You know, had never really had any kind of notable victories I think ever I think his you know the prize money obviously from winning Wimbledon doubles dramatically kind of probably exceeded you know to get a paycheck for two weeks of work probably was about the same as his whole career earnings to date um but I just they beat the Bryans in the semi-finals and then in the final itself um they beat Linstead and Takao so very established doubles pairings um they won it 6-3 in the fifth set in the final and I just remember, you know, it was just such a surprising storyline. And, you know, for it to be a British player as well, who probably no one had ever really heard of, um, I just thought it was fantastic. And I think they were the first, it was the first British man to reach the doubles final since like 1960. So again, a very long time coming. The last British men's doubles champions were back in 1936. Um, I've been 
bonus points if anyone could name them patrick hughes and raymond tucky yeah there we go um <laughs> and also also kim i've got a little question i've got a little question for oh, you yes. and for our listeners as well so you you are correct so johnny Murray was supposed to compete with someone else um at wimbledon uh that year um it wasn't meant to be freddie nielsen to begin with it was it was someone else and i've never heard i've never heard of this person a canadian <laughs> um a canadian i'm i don't think you're gonna know this a canadian by the name of adil shamas din Shamas i have din? heard of him i well, have you heard, heard of him well, yeah okay. but i've just seen his name in like double straws i wouldn't know what he looked like oh, okay. um i have seen the name <laughs> i mean i just think also because freddie nielsen um you know obviously denmark have got caroline wozniacki but da- there are literally like not many danish male tennis players that people know about so he is he is quite famous in denmark he is their their most uh proficient tennis export i think <laughs> i always remember after this like freddie nielsen coming out and basically saying almost like denouncing doubles and be like look i want to focus on my singles, singles career mm. and that literally went nowhere and i always felt like he, maybe he should just stuck to doubles well he did they did carry on playing together um i think them two because they they got to the world tour finals um obviously this year by winning mm. wimbledon so i think they got i don't know if they got to the semis or they just lost at the round robin so and then i remember like in subsequent wimbledon's time i i would always watch freddie nelson in the doubles i'd always make sure i was like at the court to watch him um i think he played with I don't. I think the year after, I think they did play together to try and defend their title, but they lost in like the second round. Um, and then after that, he had different different partners. Um, but interestingly, Freddie Nielsen's grandfather, Kurt Nielsen, um, reached the Wimbledon final in 1953 and 1955. So for a long time, he was apparently just known as Kurt's grandson. Um, so obviously, in the Nielsen family, tennis has has been, you know. A lifelong you know sport it's obviously in their blood um so it's just quite funny that he he managed to go all the way and actually win the Wimbledon you know get a get a Wimbledon title um albeit not in the singles but in the doubles um but yeah for me this is just such a nice again a nice storyline British success you know a random wild card winning um and just yeah and it also you know I I started following both of them kind of after after their victory and I've um yeah it's been a real kind of pleasure a personal pleasure as well as as a fan to kind of to kind of follow their you know well mostly Freddie Nielsen after 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 this victory um we'll have to get him on the pod Joel have a good chat and uh, pick his brains <laughs> yeah let's let's see if we can do that but yeah listeners uh yeah that's been our list so far from number 16 down to to number 9 what do you think of it so far do you think we've have we missed any, any have we missed anything out have we have we got it in the right order do you think uh let us know um of course you can subscribe to the podcast on apple podcast on spotify wherever you listen to our podcast make sure you click that subscribe button and uh yeah if you do enjoy listening to us on apple podcasts make sure to leave us a rating and comment yep and you can also follow us on social media of course uh, on twitter instagram and facebook uh, at passing shot pod uh, so do get in touch let us know your thoughts if you've got any questions for us we'd also love to hear those and if you want to send us an email you can also do that as well um our email is passing at gmail.com 
Yes. And uh, yeah, we'll of course be back for part two to count down numbers eight to number one. Kim, I know you're very excited. There's a lot of moments that we still need to cover. And uh, yeah, we will be back uh, shortly with those with those moments, probably uh, in, in the midweek uh, next week. So uh, do look forward to that. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, I hope you're kind of in- enjoying kind of the weather. It's quite glorious out there at the moment. And uh, you're not having withdrawal symptoms uh, for Wimbledon. But uh, yeah, we hope you're we hope you're well. We hope you're safe as usual. And uh, yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back shortly. I've got a bit of a bone to pick with you. On our last episode when we interviewed Gabby, you mentioned the Adria Cup being in the Baltics, but it's not. It's in the Balkans. Kim, honestly, no one cares about the difference between the Baltics and the Balkans. I'm sure Baltic and Balkan people do. They are two separate places. Okay, let's clarify this. What is the difference between the two? The Baltics are like Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. So it's like much further north than the Balkans. Yeah geography okay i'll i'll brush up on my geography uh for for the next adria cup when it returns please do <laughs> <laughs> when it returns <laughs> if it returns if it returns <laughs> 